This is Tom Fox. Welcome to a very special week on the FCPA Compliance Report. On Monday, August 31st, will be my 500th episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This week, I've asked five of the top compliance commentators around to share with me some of their reflections on what has changed from their perspective over the past 10 years or so in compliance. We begin with Mike Volkoff on changes in FCPA enforcement. Matt Kelly visits with us about changes that he has seen from his business journalist hat perspective. Jonathan Armstrong talks about changes in data protection and data privacy. Jay Rosen talks about changes from his unique business development perspective. And finally, Jonathan Marks talks to us about the changes he sees in compliance mirroring those he saw in internal audit after the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley. On my 500th episode, I'll talk about some of the changes that I've seen and also some of the highlights from podcasting over the past eight years or so. This is a very special week. I hope you will enjoy it as much as I've enjoyed producing it and bringing it to you. Thanks for being a part of the FCPA Compliance Report and I hope you will stay with me on the journey to episode 1000. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with another episode in the exorbitant march to 500 episodes on the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have with me Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen. Uh, as you know, we are taking a look at some of the trends which the collective uh, group has seen over the past number of years since I've been podcasting, and Jay's perspective is from the business development perspective. So I wanted to see if he might uh, join us to talk about some of the things he's seen, perhaps from the vendor side of compliance, uh, starting with um, learning how to spell FCPA, (laughs) and from that becoming uh, a pretty well-known commentator uh, in and of uh, his own right. So Jay, with that... uh, Incredibly long-winded introduction. First of all, welcome. Thanks, Tom. It's uh, kind of nice to be in the hot seat instead of presenting the news, uh, having to answer the question. So I will do my best. So, Jay, why don't you start off by telling us uh, um, how you uh, matriculated into the FCPA space? Because I think that's a pretty good story. Yeah. Uh, I moved out here to Los Angeles in the late 80s uh, to get involved in the entertainment business. And I did the proverbial strengths at a couple mailrooms, uh, companies called Triad Artists and ICM. And uh, then after that, I, you know, in the past, you've heard uh, our viewers have heard you and I speak about popcorn and compliance and my frustrating, not frustrating, but my recovering days as a screenwriter. So I came out here to write screenplays and uh, movies and worked at Fox, worked at Warner Brothers. And then uh, at the turn of the century, I essentially felt that I had done everything I wanted to do in the entertainment industry. And some of my former college college colleagues teased me and said, you know what, I understand you went to a place called the Wharton School of Business, where where DJT went, I have to unfortunately say. And they said, aren't you going to do something real with your life? So at that point, I joined a company called um, 
Focal Point Partners, and I became a director of business development. So I thought this was a pretty good gig for me going from Hollywood to becoming a vice president of development, but I had to learn what that meant. And what it was about was learning my uh, what middle market investment banking was and explaining how our team could help people. Uh, flash forward to 2008, Millie and Michaela, my twin daughters, are born in February. In October, the market crashes and they no longer need somebody to do business development because everything is trans. Uh, everything is, um, uh, what's the word I want? They're all uh, bankruptcies. So they don't need anybody to proactively help them do business development because there are all types of these kind of distressed transactions. So uh, the next thing I did was got on LinkedIn, which is the way Tom and I met and many other folks uh, met. And I started uh, working with a company called TransPerfect, which is the world's largest privately held company. At the time, I was selling a technology solution called a virtual data room. And when I was working with the company, I figured, well, I better learn something else. You know, that if they do translations, I better learn how to sell this. So I was in a room with a client and they were talking about four letters, which became the four most beautiful letters that I'd ever heard, FCPA. And they said that our translation solution should be used on every FCPA matter. And like all good lemmings, I nodded my head in agreement, and then I ran home and Googled it. And when I put in FCPA, the first thing I got back out was their Fairfax County Park Administration. And I figured, well, I don't really think this has something to do with the uh, parks where my wife lived, used to play in uh, Fairfax County, so I better check into this. And sooner rather than later... I got myself over to Tom's blog and started educating myself about what FCPA meant. But this was really the first way where I got into this. And this is right where Tom's story starts about 2010. So uh, let me take a break there for a second. I'll let you ask away. Well, just as a side note, will you be releasing your transcript, your college transcript as a, as a side, uh, side note to this podcast? Um, yes, and I will also uh, provide my birth certificate. I won't even have to be asked, but my father was from Maine and my mother was from Massachusetts, so that makes me a New Englander, and I could run for president if I wanted to. Well, I'm glad we've got that uh, controversy cleared up. So really, Jay, coming into this field from as a, a novice, not really understanding or perhaps knowing anything about it, what were some of your observations about the people you were sitting across the table from trying to sell services? Did you feel like they really uh, that you were you were selling a basic service? You were selling a, a, a software as a service. You were selling a service plus. Tell us about that part of uh, your journey. Well, I um, you know initially when you're out there and you're selling a technology solution, there comes with the learning the dreaded demo and being able to do it and you go into an office full of 30 people and um, it goes without fail that some piece of the technology is going to fail you while you're demonstrating it because you can't get behind their firewall. So um, a, a lot of it was, you know, training younger people who are doing it for a free meal and aren't really passionate or don't really care about the solution. 
And then as I mastered it, it became more than just running that demo. But I found that if I was able to talk about either current events or if I could talk about how the solution would help them do better, that tend to give me a leg up on the competition. And I noticed initially the folks out there were just selling on features and benefits. And what I wanted to learn about was, you know, how does this help Walmart or how does this help FedEx or how does this help this company uh, do better in a situation by having this solution? So that started me on my quest for knowledge. And, um, you know, by looking at your blog and starting to read things and part of what I was looking to do was to focus on the world of foreign transactions, because then I could make a double kill that I could sell them the virtual data room and I could also sell them the, the uh, solution to do the translation. So suddenly I was really focused on the F, the foreign nature of FCPA. And that really, you know, kept me focused on trying to learn more about investigations and where these happened and what jurisdictions. So that was the beginning uh, entree into Tom's website. And I want to say that we met each other in compliance at Compliance Week. And I want to say it was 2010. And I was having a meeting with Volkov. And I walked over to get Volkov. And he's like, do you know Tom Fox? That's Tom Fox. And um, is it possible there was uh, some gun trial that was going on? Was it sure shot? Could that have been happening in 2010? I don't recall if the trial had started in 2010, not the, uh, not in May of 2010. I think that was 2011 because uh, my wife and I went over to uh, sit in on one of the day's proceedings. Yeah, so but that's the first time I remember. Do you remember that meeting at all or like on the second floor of the Mayflower? I remember meeting you and Jim in Houston. I don't remember meeting in D.C. Houston, when we had that steak dinner? Uh, I thought it was a breakfast. C- could have been a breakfast and a steak dinner. <laughs> so um, so that's the first thing. I was focusing on the foreign, and, and maybe, you know, um, it made sense because that's where FCPA happens. But what I've come to learn over the last four years working with you on this week in FCPA and being part of the um, – Cognizante and the glitterati and whatever terms we have, I realize that it's much more than a global phenomenon. And what's really been heartening to me is to learn so much more about my craft, you know, being, uh, unfortunately, we're socially uh, uh, distanced now, but normally when we're together, I went from more learning more just about foreign solutions to looking at the whole realm of what FCPA uh, encompasses and what you've been talking about for the last decade. So corporate investigations, culture, ethics, healthcare, suspension and debarment. So where was I going to get all this? I was getting this force fed to me every week by you. And, uh, you know, sometimes it was more on my schedule and sometimes it was more in your schedule. And I remember about four years ago that you said, you know what? you and I are going to do a weekly podcast called This Week in FCPA. And he said, what do you think? I said, yes, sir. That was the only answer I could give. Yes, sir. So I remember, Jay, when uh, I think it was you, but maybe you and Jim kind of had an aha moment. 
and you took, uh, you were selling translations, and you were able to to actually bundle that. It, it was almost, I don't want to say it was a product because you were delivering uh, something, but you were able to then take that and move it into more of an ongoing service where you would uh, help a company uh, update various uh, written documents, whether it be policies, procedures, codes of conduct. I was wondering if, if you might be able to talk about that evolution and how you were able to see that you even use, utilizing something as, as straightforward as a translation, you could move that into a service and then a company could use that to help um, evolve their compliance program. Yeah, great, great observation and question. So um, basically what we, ha- well, where our breakthrough was is we learned where the, um, where the translations were being utilized within a corporate hierarchy. And then we also learned the timing of this. So, um, you know, m- my example is, is that most companies want to refresh or update their codes of conduct and it's usually every 18 to 24 months. So the service we were offering them was something that was really basic, that we would take their document in English, and we would have a linguist do a translation into German, into Portuguese, into simplified Chinese. And we would do that and have that. Uh, the fruits of that was all something that was something in, in, in something called the translation memory, the TM. So once we had that in the TM, we would say, look, well, when we have to update this for you in a year and a half or two years from now, the bulk of the heavy lifting has been done. And all we need to do is take your new um, updated code from English and compare it to the English code that we did last year. And maybe we only have to translate 20 or 15 or 30 percent of the words. So when we do that, not only are we saving the money, but we're helping to have a captive customer because this customer is counting on us to have the translation memory. And then they can start growing this from maybe five languages to 15 to 20 to 40. So not only did we realize what it was being used, but we also said, well, we're going to make we're going to take this work off your hands and you're going to give me this in English, ask for it in 40 languages and I'm going to give it back to you over the next six to 24 weeks. And I'm going to do this. And every week I'm going to give you an Excel spreadsheet that's going to tell you where we stand in the process of translating these languages. So simply by just being inquisitive and not just doing a transactional service, but actually pre providing value. And that value was that we understood what the use of this end product was and we was we was we were going to make it easy for them for them to very much tick this off their to do list because once they gave it to us they didn't have to worry about it until the project was done. So Jay, many of your clients were law firms who were buying your uh, translation services, but you also gravitated towards speaking directly with corporations. During this time, did you notice uh, a more uh, I don't want to say sophistication, but really a broader understanding of how the tools and services that you were offering could be used to help companies almost on a, either a continuous monitoring or continuous evolution, but to, to move their compliance program forward. Is that a, a conversation that you had with uh, customers? Yeah, I think as time went on, 
not only did the sales become, um, it, it became, uh, I, I guess, I don't know how to say this, but it, it became a deeper level conversation. So from being just transactional to now explaining how this could help. And at the same time, the sophistication of the sale, the buyer was also equally sophisticated because now, unfortunately, they could read in the newspaper how somebody within their vertical, and you can substitute telecom or energy or whatever, somebody who was selling it to those same spaces had issues. And they've quickly learned that at the very least, they need to take a look at their code of conduct and take a look at their culture and take a look at how this is going to happen. And lots of times when you and I are talking, you're going to, you say, well, Mr. Monitor is really happy because they're looking into translating their code of conduct into the local language. So I think at some point, and it might be uh, I probably around the time of 2012, I think, when Walmart first started, that a lot of people said, well, if the world's largest retailer can have this problem, this problem could probably be something that I need to at least pay some cursory attention to, that I at least have to make efforts. And then I've seen as people grow more and more passionate about this, it became not just the CYA cover your butt, but it became something that was really baked into now the whole ethics and compliance universe. And now there's much more where we're talking about culture and culture might seem to be more of an ephemeral or esoteric subject. But if you go from the initial translation to what it's providing and then what you're trying to do with it as a corporation, I think it becomes a much more useful and sophisticated discussion. Jay, you, uh, your career as Mr. Monitors ended and you moved over to affiliated monitors. And there you are selling a much more comprehensive solution and set of products. But it, it also is much more proactive, helping companies move beyond simply, well, we have to respond to this investigation, this uh, subpoena, this something, to uh, proactively trying to uh, not only detect but prevent uh, and even prescribe anything arising to the level of a violation. Has the customer base also uh, moved along with, with you on that journey to understand really how much power there is in a proactive approach? Very much so, Tom. And you know, um, like you said, at one point I stopped being FCP underscore translations and became FCP underscore monitor. And what was interesting about joining affiliated monitors, and as you really uh, articulated quite well, it went from being a, a transactional service-like translation to talking about a more comprehensive solution. And what was interesting to me is the audience still say, stayed the same, that I made it my business to cultivate relationships with AMLAW 200 and 100 white-collar attorneys. And I also wanted to cultivate those relationships with folks who worked on the corporate side, who are in the ethics and compliance silo or in the legal silo. So when we did, when I made all those connections, they were... Um, I guess they, they were very portable, that they went from the translation side of the house, and now they still came into the ethics and the compliance and the proactive uh, work that we were doing with the clients. So um, 
in one part, it was very easy for me to make that translation transition. But on the other part, it was, as you pointed out, a much different solution. So it's almost like going back to the investment banking days, because there I was talking about the team at Focal Point Partners. And now what I'm selling is the team at Affiliated Monitors, that we have somebody who used to be a suspension and debarment officer officer for the Air Force. And we have somebody who used to be an AUSA. So I have all those different people who fill out the team and who fill out the scorecard. And what it behooved me over the last three and a half years was to learn those conversations and to figure out what the buzzword was so I knew the proper AMI person to plug in. So Jay, as we move obviously in the era of coronavirus and into the 2020s, and we're going to move forward are there any trends that you are seeing which may have been percolating along in 2018 or 2019 that have accelerated during coronavirus as the government gave any pronouncements which you think uh, have re-emphasized things like perhaps culture or uh, other areas that may have had less emphasis uh, previously? Great question. Um, I, I think we will look back at 2020 besides um, the year of this pandemic, but 2020 was the year where you could get all the DOJ uh, evaluation that you needed. I think we got socks so far with three different evaluations uh, in the first part of this uh, year. And um, what we have been talking about as a collective uh, in the ethics and compliance community is that there are more and more specific um, instructions by the DOJ on how you need to activate your ethics and compliance program, how you need to take lessons learned, how you need to take artificial intelligence and make this all part about um, how you do what you do to prevent uh, anti-corruption. The other piece of this talking about has something been accelerated is we have that work from home piece that you and I have been struggling with for the last five, six months. And then we also have that piece about how we're using technology. And I distinctly remember early in January this year, I was having a, a catch up call with our colleague, Amy Barnard Bond. And she said to me, well, let's do a zoom call. And I'm like, a what call? She's like, yeah, let's do a Zoom call. It's like a video conference. And I said, um, okay. And, you know, my, my daughter, Michaela, always jokes with me and she says, yes, boomer. So I think I had my yes, boomer moment there that I hadn't done a Zoom thing. I did it with Amy and I'm like, yeah, well, you know, it's okay. And now how many of these Zooms and squadcasts and teams, I mean, this is our lifeblood. So getting back to your question about what has been presaged or what changed, uh, w taking the work from home, which is what we're doing, and taking the platform now that we're using Zoom or whatever other video conferencing, uh, sometimes it's good enough from the ethics and compliance standpoint to have a conversation and impart information and do a focus group. But then we've had folks come on the podcast and talk about why it's not good enough for a serious investigation because I can't see that sweat beating on your lip when you're getting ready to tell a lie to me, Tom, or something like that. So uh, I think that the proverbial uh, cow is out of the barn here. 
I think that what's going to be interesting and what I want to see that's going to happen in the second half of this year and going forward is I would think companies' ethics and compliance budgets have changed quite differently now because we've taken travel out of the discussion. So now I'm not having to go with two of my colleagues, fly to Panama City, work for a day and a half and come back. And suddenly the client has an extra ten dollars to $15,000 in their ethics and compliance budget. So the question is, is it use it or lose it? Are there other ways that that money can be better spent to help an ethics and compliance department? Or is that just going to just drop off the bottom line? So I want to see what companies are going to be doing if they have a surplus in their ENC budget. How are they going to apply it? Are they going to spend it on technology? Are they going to spend it on training? Are they going to spend it on trying to help their uh you know, that their employees learn more about a subject matter. So that's what I think is one of the interesting um, things to happen this year. And I'd love I'd love to look into that crystal ball and say that money is going to be utilized to up their ENC game. But uh, I can't quite guarantee you that that's going to happen. Jay, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to thank you. I wanted to thank you for your friendship over the years and for being the co-host on this week in FCPA, and I frankly can't wait to see uh, what the next five to 10 years brings us. Happy 500th, Tom, and uh, look forward to being part of that as well. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report as I move towards my 500th episode, which will premiere on Monday, August 1st. I hope you will listen in to that episode. I also hope you will join me tomorrow where Jonathan Marks talks about the evolution of compliance through the lens of an internal auditor who has seen the evolution of his profession since the days of Enron and Sarbanes-Oxley. A fascinating exploration of a parallel evolution that uh, Jonathan can talk to us about. These podcasts this week and the 500th episode are all special productions of the Compliance Podcast Network. FCPA Compliance Report is also a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to visiting with you again. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.